welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, my friends. If you want to make your way back to your seats, if you want to find a Bible, we're going to need one. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, my name is Micah, by the way, if we haven't met. Um, I did find the microphone, so if anyone was really worried about that, don't worry, we found it. Um, and I didn't hear what Jane mentioned about uh, next week, but very excited about that. Um, one gathering, don't forget, if you show up here, um, you'll be the, well, you might not be the only one, but you'll definitely be the minority in our group. Uh, so one, one gathering, 11 o'clock, Raspberry Island, it's going to be great. Hope, you, hope to see you there. Um, there are some passages in the Bible that don't do us any favors. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, there are certain passages in Scripture that are kind of ripe for conspiracy theories. You know what I mean? Uh, and when, they get, when a certain group of people get their hands on them, it's sort of like crazy town happens. And this passage we're going to study this morning is maybe the best of all in terms of uh, fodder for the conspiracy theorists. Here are a couple of book titles that have come from the passage we're going to study this morning, okay? One is called The Archon Invasion, The Rise and Fall and the Return of the Nephilim. Yes, yes. Uh, here's another one. The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, the untold story of fallen angels, giants on the earth, and their extraterrestrial origins. And maybe the best for last, the Nephilim, the truth about Genesis 6. Fallen angels, ancient evil, and the days of Noah, parentheses, the watchers, mystery, Babylon, transhumanism, the Illuminati, and the occult agenda. There you have it. So that's, uh, these are book, actual book titles. You can look them up on Amazon. You can find them. I would highly recommend that you do not buy them. <laughs> but when the crazies get a hold of this passage, it's kind of like, as my dad used to say, Katie, bar the door. You just never know what's going to happen. So welcome to Awaken and our summer series called Lost in Translation. If you're new, each summer, uh, over the last couple summers, we have decided to sort of take the most bizarre, most difficult, uh, most hard to understand or interpret passages and really just take them head on and try to understand them. Most people, most pastors I know, like take the steering wheel and steer far, far away from these kinds of passages. But we take the steering wheel and we aim this thing right at them. For a number of reasons, uh, some have said and wondered, like, are there a couple of screws loose in uh, a few people who lead this thing? Uh, maybe, maybe, but um, honestly, we do this for a couple of reasons that are really important. Uh, we're committed to Scripture at Awaken, and in the Covenant Church as a whole, really committed to Scripture. The old Covenanters used to say, where is it written? And so we believe that this book is worth interpreting well, that it's worth the hard work that it might require to interpret these passages. Uh, for, we believe that for whatever reason, God has chosen and continues to choose to reveal God's self in and through this book. And so it's worth our time. Uh, and I would say, we believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he's invited us to demonstrate and announce the good news about the gospel of resurrection. And quite frankly, I think Jesus gets pretty bad PR sometimes, so I'm hoping to change that a little bit with some of these passages, because these passages, and ones like it, that we're going to tackle, often get taken and co-opted and sort of... Uh, Good Bible-believing Christians get lumped into a whole group of people who m might have a couple of screws loose. You know what I'm saying? So that's why we do this series. It's important. So Genesis chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, turn there. 
and I will invite you to stand as we read from the scriptures. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Genesis 6, and we'll read through verse 8. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. <clears throat> the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Pray with me. God, this morning as we open this text, which is uh, so very old, and yet so very near to us at times, I pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us. Um, Again, we begin with the assumption that you're interested in revealing uh, part of who you are to us this morning. And so I pray that whatever is needed next would be ready, would be available, would be given uh, as it always is, with open hands and with love and with grace. Uh, So to that end we pray and we commit ourselves to this task of study and of worship. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to cover like the first third or two-thirds of this passage. I read the rest about Noah because it's sort of a setup, and you can't really understand the first part without sort of where it's going. And in a couple weeks, we're actually going to tackle the flood story. Uh, We were going to do that on the 30th, which happens to be a Everybody Sunday where the kids are going to be with us. And John Mark pointed out uh, last week, he's like, I've heard you say like a dozen times, we probably shouldn't be telling the kids the flood story, so maybe we should pick a different week to talk about that one, right? So we're going to switch that, but we're coming back to it, the flood. Um, And it's not very often that a passage vexes me personally uh, like this one does. Uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'd like to consider that I've done some hard work of study and learning how to interpret the Bible at least halfway decently, and I've gone to seminary. And this passage is so confusing, it's not even funny. At about Friday, Thursday night, When I'm usually done with my sermon, I thought to myself, I think I maybe bit off more than I could chew on this one. Maybe we should try a different one. But at that point, it was too late. So we're going for it. So here's what I want to do this morning. Um, This this passage has so many interpretive difficulties, we're only going to scratch the surface of a couple of them. But the way I want to structure this this morning is I want to just highlight um, some of the interpretive difficulties in this passage. So you get a sense of like under the hood, like why is this hard to understand? Then we're going to move to just a couple of common interpretations. Like, how is this passage commonly understood? Or what are the two most common interpretations? And then I want to try to land with, does any of this have anything to do with you and me in 2017? Like, maybe you're asking, or you will be asking, does this have anything to do with my actual life today? And I'm going to try to present the case that it does. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this goes as well as I think it might, but you never know. Um, are you ready? <laughs> Here we go. Let's pull the pin. All right, here we go. First and foremost, interpretive challenges. Why is this passage difficult to understand? We'll take them in turn, all right? 
Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? A lot of time in the scriptures, you find language that's sort of coded or, or hard to understand. And the sons of God and the daughters of men give interpreters fits. There's all kinds of uh, theories about who these people are. And honestly, if I'm looking at this passage, this is the key to, I think this is the key to the interpretive door. Uh, if you want to get this passage, or at least get close to what was the author thinking and what was the intent of it, you have to define who are the sons of God and the daughters of men. And then from there, sort of all other doors open. Now, a couple of possibilities on who these people are. The first is, they're fallen angels, the sons of God. They're fallen angels, a part of sort of Satan's minions, who, have, uh, who are now manifesting themselves in human form to the degree that they can have sex with women, like human women, right? So the sons of God, one theory is, these are fallen angels, and the daughters of men are, in fact, as it says, quite clearly, daughters of humans. Um, that's one possibility. Another possibility is connected to chapters 4 and 5. In chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis, if you read from the beginning and you follow it along all the way through Genesis 6, 4 and 5 set up 6. Chapter 5, right before 6, is really all about Seth. And so one idea of who the sons of God and the daughters of men are are the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother Abel in the field, right? So one theory on this is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Seth, in the text, is sort of, um, he is the prototype for the faithful, godly, Yahweh-loving future of humanity. And Cain is kind of the foil. He's sort of the antithesis of that, or those who are the descendants of Cain are the, uh, the non-covenant or the non-faithful sort of future of humanity. And one theory on this is that the sons of God and the daughters of men, the descendants of Seth, and the descendants of Cain get together, and that sort of continues the spiral of humanity where the faithful, God-loving people of Yahweh intermarry with the non, and that can sort of dilutes the spiritual uh, or health of humanity, right? Those are two possible scenarios of who the daughters of men, or the sons of God and the daughters of men are. That's one challenge. Another challenge is this. Why does God limit their days to 120? So in verse 3 you see that it says that God doesn't want to contend with humans and will limit their days to 120. A lot of people think, well, that nobody can live past 120 years old then. But of course we know, if we study scripture and dig in a little bit, Abraham was like almost 600 years old when he died. Isaac and Jacob were 180 and 147 respectively. So it's not about people's age, per se. God isn't saying, like, no one can live past 120 anymore. So what is that about? Some would argue that it's this point to the flood is 120 years. All kinds of theories about this, right? So these are just a couple of examples. Who are the Nephilim? These people, they show up, like, two or three times in Scripture, once here, once in Numbers, and then sort of by reference later in the New Testament. Who are these people? And by some of the conspiracy theories you've heard, these are giants. They're like half sort of spiritual, half human. They're demigods. They're kind of this superhuman race that walked the earth. Did anybody see the movie Noah? You remember that, right? The Watchers, that was the sort of Kabbalah or the Jewish mystics take on the Nephilim, if you didn't know. That's who those people were. So there's all kinds of crazy theories about who these people are. In Hebrew, Nephilim means the fallen ones. So I think there's something to be said about the word itself and what it means and how it plays into the story. Either way, most people believe that verse 2 and 4 are connected. 
that the activity of the sons of God and the daughters of men, the sexual activity, produces the Nephilim. So the Nephilim are the offspring of this bizarre relationship between maybe fallen angels and humans, maybe the daughters or the, the, the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. Either way, those are the Nephilim. All right? Now, a couple other uh, interpretive difficulties, and then we'll move on to interpretations. Um, how does God regret making humanity? Did anybody catch that? It says that God regretted making humans, which I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's kind of a concerning thought, or at least uh, mildly depressing that God, you know, however God sees all this, is like, dang, <laughs> I really regret doing that. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting thing to think about. When you dig a little, this word that's translated regret, in Judaism, in Hebrew, uh, there's a semantic range for words, which means that if there's a word, it often has multiple options for meaning, right? And the translators do their best to pick. But if you read the King James and the NASB, you also know that this word is translated repent, which maybe confuses matters even more, that God repented that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved God's heart, is how the King James translates it. So that's another interpretive difficulty. We're just stacking them up here. I'm trying to present the case that this is hard work, and uh, I've tried to do as best as I could this morning, and this is all that I've got for you. <laughs> last one, last interpretive challenge. And this one, I think, this really matters to me, and I, and I would offer to you. Uh, I would say it this way. Blueprint versus open view of the future, all right? In the conversation about God's sovereignty and how God interacts with the future or God's foreknowledge, like does God know everything and does God uh, see it all, have a plan? That's a blueprint theory or a determined view of the future. And then you have what's called an open view of the future or free will. You might have heard that phrase. In this conversation, these are the two poles, okay? If you hold a determined view of the future, and often this comes up when something tragic happens and we don't understand it and people say like, well, it's, it's God's plan. And so we take comfort in the fact that it's part of God's plan and we can trust that plan because God is good and God is love, right? That's how it often comes out in our day-to-day -day life. If you hold this view of God's knowledge of the future, then it has to include creation, fall, and the flood. Which means that somehow... God had it all in mind when God said go, right? When God decided to create the world, God had in mind this. The creation of humanity and all the animals and the beauty of that it is, the demise of humanity, and then the annihilation, the destruction, the slaughter of humanity and all the animals within it so that there could be another start, right? Like if, if God, if you hold that view, then that's half, you have to take it that way. To which... There's a lot of questions about the nature of God, right? Like what kind of God would say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create this thing, beautiful, everything living, breathing with the breath of God in it, and then we're going to watch it fall down, 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 down until the last moment where I'm going to destroy it all, kill it all, slaughter it all so that I can start again. Won't that be fun? I mean, honestly, like that's a caricature, right? But that's the implication of that view if you hold it as it relates to this story. And so I think this is where theology and what we think about God, it really matters. And so when you find someone who's in suffering 
or has gone through some tragic experience. How you view God's sovereignty or God's plan and our ability to choose or have free will in the midst of this, it really, really matters. So, a stack of interpretive difficulties, and I could go on and on. I could go for two, three hours, and you would all be asleep, which I've chosen not to do. So those are just a couple of interpretive difficulties in this passage. Now, a couple of common interpretations in terms of how people read Genesis 6. And the first one I would say, for the sake of simplicity and time, we're going to put it in two categories, literal and mythic, all right? We'll explain this in a minute. Literal, let's start here. People who read Genesis 6, one option is to read this quite literally. And so, in that, I've already hinted at the two variations of this. One would be that these were literally fallen angels. So this is a group of angelic beings with Satan who have fallen and who have now manifest themselves in some human form to the degree that they can have sexual relations with humans to produce the Nephilim, which is sort of this spiraling scenario downhill setting up the flood. This is one interpretation, if you read it literally. Here's a couple of positives to this view. Judaism, actually, for a long time, in, uh, early on in Judaism, a lot of people thought this. There's a whole section in the book of Enoch, which is a Jewish piece of literature, that talks about this event in that way. Uh, Jude, chapter, or verse 6, there's only one chapter. I think it's the only book in the Bible that has one chapter. So Jude 6 says... And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. So one of the highlights of this, this way of reading it is that Scripture talks about it this way. At least the angels and what happened there. And I think some, a good rule of thumb is let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And so you have to contend with that. That's a positive of this view. Um, the spirit of this view, which is that somehow humanity is reaching across a boundary to something that it ought not to, being like God, sounds a lot like Genesis 3. And so if you read it this way, that's one of the, I think, the upsides of this view. The troubles with this position. There's an awful lot we don't know about angels, right? There isn't much said. And so we're making conjecture and, and we're guessing about, can angels actually do that? Like manifest themselves in human form to the, to the degree that they can, you know, <laughs> with humans. Like, can angels do that? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know about angels. So the view itself is predicated on a lot we don't know. Scientifically and metaphysically, there's a lot, a lot of explaining to do if you choose to read this quite literally, right? Isn't that a, some, you got some explaining to do. If you, if you view this literally, then scientifically and metaphysically, how is all this working out, right? Uh, that's a fair critique. And if this happened, and the offspring were the Nephilim, then there are these sort of semi-divine or more divine beings wandering around the earth, which might explain Michael Jordan and Michael Phelps and Steve Jobs. <laughs> and people like them, but it sets up a category that I don't think is coherent with Scripture and that I don't think really makes a lot of sense. So, literal, Nephilim, are the products of fallen angels and humans who have sex and they create the Nephilim. That's one option, literally. Another one is this, saint, this uh, Seth and Cain, right? So the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, the godly, faithful future of humanity, the evil sort of foil of humanity, get together and produce this offspring. P 
Positives, there's a lot less celestial confusion with this view, right? It's, you could, okay, that's plausible, especially in light of Genesis 3, 4, 5 and the setup for it. It seems to be in line with the ark and the trajectory of the writer. One of the down negatives of this is that it doesn't really explain the language of the Nephilim. Like, who are these people and why would the descendants of two human clans produce this sort of bizarre, weird category of beings called the Nephilim who are the heroes of old and men of renown? Like, what is that about? It doesn't explain that at all. So those, that's one possible category, literal, all right? Now let's quickly do mythic, and then we'll jump to why do I think this matters for today. Lots of people, Bible-believing, faithful Christians, would argue that this is to be read mythically. And what I don't mean by mythically is untrue, or like a fable, like Aesop's fables, or a fairy tale. That's not how I'm using the word. Rather, one definition of myth a usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serve to unfold the worldview of a people and explain a practice, belief, or phenomenon. Right? I would say it this way. Myths are dominant and shaping narratives that hold together large groups of people or give background for held beliefs about the nature of God, humans, and the world. So mythic in that definition. In a mythic reading of Genesis 6, the sons of God, these angelic beings, cohabitating with women, produce this demigod-like superhuman race which continues the spiral of humanity down towards what ends up being the flood. Right? It's a setup for the flood story. Positives of this view, uh, this motif of like superhuman demigods is all over the ancient world. If you read Greek mythology, you've run into these characters. Uh, Homer, in uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus runs into a group of people called the Gigantus, right? Half God, half human. Do you guys remember Remember the Titans? Uh, Denzel Washington, yeah? The Titans are a version of this. Half human, half God. So this, like, motif of people, they're all over the ancient world, which would have been contemporary to the Bible when it was written, this, this section. So it would make sense that that gets pulled in. Uh, some of the negatives of this view is that if you hold this view, the assumptions about the Bible you have to have, well, let me say it this way. Let me say it differently. Uh, the assumptions you have to begin with about the nature of the Bible, you can't be a literalist or what some people call a biblicist. So some people would say, at our church, we're literalists. We're biblicists. And they say it with pride. The assumptions that are needed to hold that view, you can't come to this conclusion of Genesis being a mythic understanding, Right? Uh, also, I think if you, you have to contend with the areas of Scripture that talk about the angels in this way. Uh, so if Scripture talks about it like this, how do you explain that? Where they're real, like there were angels, and they, uh, they, they, they left their position, and they assumed another position, right? The Scriptures talk about the angels that way, so how do you explain that? And then if you begin reading Genesis less literally and more mythically, right, that maybe some of these folks weren't real people or actual historical events like we understand history, and there are lots of Christians that do, then where do you draw the line? Right? This is the classic slippery slope argument. Do we throw out the miracles of the New Testament? What about the resurrection? So if you read Genesis in that way, then is it a slippery slope to like it's all just kind of mumbo-jumbo and you can take it or leave it? That's one of the critiques of this. If you want to know my leanings on this, you'll have to buy me a drink. And uh, 
take me out for a cup of coffee and I'll tell you them. And honestly, I think the Seth and the Cain thing makes the most sense if you throw in the, the, the motif of the, uh, the demigod sort of superhuman bizarro Nephilim. Like, hold those two things in, <laughs> together and I think you have like some semblance of like how to understand this passage. So how's that for clear? <laughs> you guys good? You ready to rock and roll? All right, we've made it to the, we've made it to the end of that part. <laughs> which may or may not be interesting to you. So is there anything that you can leave with this morning that has to do with your actual life? So what, Micah? Two thoughts. I would say the first one this way. Interesting but not important. I was a youth pastor, and uh, I worked with junior hires and then senior hires, and there was this one student who shall remain nameless, wonderful, wonderful person. But they would often come to me and they'd say, man, Micah, can we study Daniel? Or, Micah, can we study the prophecies of the Old Testament? Micah, can we study the end times and Revelation? And it just, like, really, really bent on some of these kinds of more phenomenal passages in Scripture. And they would say, seems like you're just always talking about Jesus. Can we talk about some of these other things? Which I guess if you're going to be critiqued for anything, that's a good one, right? And I remember this moment of clarity where I said to this person, you know, I, I appreciate your heart on this. I really do. But quite honestly, these things are interesting, but in my humble opinion, they're not that important. On the grand scheme of things, on the things that you could spend your time and energy and effort and debate, this kind of passage is interesting, but it might not be that important at the end of the day. There are all kinds of things in the Bible that are interesting, but that may not be that important at the end of the day. Adam and Eve, real people or not real people? Interesting, maybe not the most important debate we can be having. Um, prophecy, How, do all these prophecies line up to the point where they're all fulfilled and then we get Jesus? Interesting, absolutely. The most important thing we can spend our time doing as the church, maybe not, right? Uh, the end times, when is Jesus coming back? This person was like, I want to study the end times. And I said, listen, the disciples asked Jesus, when is God coming back? And Jesus said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So I appreciate your vote of confidence, but I don't think I've got a shot at this one. <laughs> right? We're not going to do it. Did the walls of Jericho actually fall down when they blew horns? Or is this, right? Uh, flood, local event or global event? Did it happen? Did it not happen? All of these are examples of passages in Scripture, and some of these have implications that are more important than others. Yes, get it. But when you stack them all up, and you can take the energy of the church, the people of God in the world, and you can put it towards something, I think this is pretty far down the list. Are you with me? In terms of the things that we can be spending our time and energy debating about and arguing about, and saying, it's got to be this or nothing about. Because there are kids down the school, down the street, two blocks away, who don't have enough food. There are people who are going to go to bed tonight with not enough food or not in a home of their own, homeless. There are people right now, as we sit here, who are enslaved or who are being trafficked, young women and children. These are things that I think might be higher on the list of things we could spend time, energy, and effort as the people of God in the world putting towards. Are you with me now? So I think 
Now, you might argue, Micah, you just like undercut the whole Lost in Translation series that we're doing, right? Actually, I'm not. I'm going to get to that in a second. But in terms of the things we can spend our time and energy debating about, and you've seen this before, right? Conferences about creation, literal or not, evolution and creation, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Important in some ways, but for crying out loud, folks, Jesus makes it pretty clear. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart. Like, there's a couple things you can do, and if you're going to do anything, do these things, not those things, right? So I just want to make sure we put these in, in the proper order in terms of our heart and our energy and what we're doing and putting out into the world for the sake of the gospel. Interesting, maybe not the most important. Last, I'll say this. What you believe and how you believe, okay? What you believe, the content of your belief, and how you believe it. We've talked about this a lot at Awaken, and I'm going to repeat it because I think it's that important. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Abraham and Isaac. The first usage of the word faith in the Hebrew scriptures, enuma, seems to be this really clear argument throughout all scripture that faith, what you believe, cannot be divorced from how you believe, or said differently, what you believe can't be divorced from the impact and what it produces in your life and in the world. There are all kinds of debates about this or that. And for a long time, Christians, the church, if I'm being honest, have majored on the what of belief and spent very little time about the how of belief. And unfortunately for many, this has led to a kind of posture that is often interpreted as dogmatic, judgmental, arrogant, self-righteous, right? And usually when Christians are critiqued of being dogmatic, arrogant, self-righteous, it's not because of how we've held that belief, but rather what. And I want to suggest to you this morning What I'm not saying is what you believe isn't important. It is. It's absolutely important. But might we spend a bit more time thinking about how we hold the beliefs that we hold? And maybe that how we hold the beliefs that we hold is more a reflection of the Spirit's work of transformation in our lives than getting it all right. Because you can believe all the right things theologically and be a jerk. And we've met those people. Maybe we've been those people. So how we hold our beliefs is as important, if not more important, than the content of what we believe. And this has been on display this last week. If you've been paying attention to the news and sort of Christian, uh, uh, a very prominent Christian author and theologian came out in support of same-sex marriage and then retracted those comments and said, actually, no, that's not what I meant. I meant this. And the vitriol that rose to the surface in an instant from who? The people of God was absolutely disheartening and embarrassing. So people who disagreed on a what of belief showed to the world how they held that belief, and it was embarrassing in a lot of cases. Are you with me now? So friends, church of Jesus Christ, what you believe, these passages, they're about God 
and the world and humanity, and they inform how we act in the world. So they're absolutely important because what we believe gets acted out. I want to challenge you this week as I close. Here's the one thing I want you to take away today. I'd like you to examine a belief that you hold, a conviction that you hold on a particular issue about God or about humanity or about the world. And I want you to ask these two questions. One, what does this belief produce in me? Said differently, how does this belief affect who I am as a person in the world? The second question is, what does this belief produce in terms of fruit in the world for the gospel? So, examine a belief, a conviction you have. Ask two questions. What does this belief produce in me? And what kind of fruit is born in the world because of this belief? What we believe is important. How we hold that belief is equally important. So you may think that the Nephilim were literal fallen angels who were a part of a band of angels with Satan who made a decision that left them outside of that camp and then who manifest themselves as humans and had sex with women to produce this group of people which led to the flood. You may think that's the best way to read this. Okay, fine. You may think that a mythic understanding of this passage is a far better reading of the, of the text. Fine. There's probably both in this, category, in this camp this morning. What does this belief produce in me? Does it make me look, act more like Jesus? And what fruit does it produce in the world? Because what we believe gets acted out. And there's a group of people, a world, watching the church saying, what does Jesus look like? And how we hold our beliefs is the mirror. It's what we transmit. It's what we put out into the world. So I would suggest to you this morning, maybe a takeaway for today as we look at this passage. One example of a difficult one that what you believe gets acted out in the world. So, Examine a belief, a conviction you hold. What does it produce in me? What kind of fruit does it produce in the world? Let me offer a word of prayer. We'll give you a moment of silence to maybe ask the Spirit of God to lead you to maybe whatever that examination might be, whatever that conviction might be. So pray with me if you would. God, this morning, we gather as your church, as the people of God in the world, and we want to be about your work. We want to be about, we want to be the ambassadors that you say we are to be of reconciliation, of good news, of forgiveness, of redemption, of hope, of mercy, of grace, of love. And so God, I pray by your spirit in this moment of silence as we examine maybe one conviction, one belief that we have and ask these two questions. What does it produce in me and what kind of fruit is born in the world because of it? Lead us. You're the spirit of truth. So we have nothing to fear when we submit ourselves to your leading. So Holy Spirit, lead us. I pray. Speak to us now. Receive this blessing as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people in the church of Jesus said, 
Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Enjoy the heat. It's summer. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.